I don't care if you're 22 or, or 72, like raise your hand and say, I, I think we need to be proactive here. Let's figure what it means to our company, our workforce, and let's start planning now. Let's not wait till it hits our industry. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 45 of the Marketing AI Show. I am your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, as always, Mike Foote, Chief Content Officer at Marketing AI Institute and co-author of our book, Marketing Artificial Intelligence, AI Marketing in the Future of Business. Uh, this is speaking circuit week for us. <laughs> I am actually coming to you from Austin, Texas, a beautiful resort in Austin, Texas, where I'm talking about uh, transforming the senior living industry with artificial intelligence. Um, I also have a talk I think on Friday in Charleston, South Carolina, um, a couple of virtual things too. And then Mike, you're at the uh, creator economy expo tomorrow and Tuesday in Cleveland. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Wednesday is my talk, but I'll be okay. lurking around there throughout the week as I do other stuff. And then I leave Thursday for beautiful Punta Cana to speak to a network of agencies. Taking one for the team there. Huh? Got to go to Punta Cana for a week. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, there's a, it's funny the you know, obviously the interest in AI has uh, exploded. And, and so Mike and I have been keeping pretty busy with the speaking circuit. There's a week in June. You know how we're going to do the, the, the uh, podcast that week. We might have to record, but Mike is in Chile and I'm in Romania and Italy all within like a three day span. I think it is. So that'll be an interesting week for the podcast, but. We'll figure it out. Maybe we'll, we'll do a best over like that. Yeah, that's one where you need to start getting virtual avatars for us to do it Seriously. while we're traveling. It's not bad. We can explore that synthetic version. Interesting. All right. Well, let's get into this one. And so this episode is brought to us by the Marketing Artificial Intelligence Conference, MACON, which is coming back to Cleveland July 26th to 28th. We just released the uh, preliminary agenda last week, it's about 80% or so of the agenda is on there. Uh, we still have a lot of general session and keynote announcements to be made over the next month or two. So stay tuned for those, but you can actually go up to macon.ai. So it's M-A-I-C-O-N.ai and check out some of the speakers we've got lined up already and get in early. I think May 12th is the next price increase. So if you're hoping to join us in Cleveland, uh, try and take advantage of that early bird pricing before May 12th. So again, it's Maycon, M-A-I-C-O-N dot A-I. I hope to see you there. And again, if you're new to the show, we pick three big topics for the week. It is increasingly hard by the week to do this. I feel like we record every Monday. We recorded last Monday. And I think by Monday afternoon, we had like three new <laughs> topics already. Like before the other show had even come out yet. So we pick three topics, we go through those and then rapid fire. And today we've got about five rapid fire items. So we got a lot to cover, yep. a little bit of time to do it. So I'm going to turn it over to Mike and let's, let's get going with the first topic, Mike. Thanks, Paul. Um, first up, we've got big changes that are coming to ChatGPT. So OpenAI just announced two big updates to ChatGPT. So the first is going to be a soon to be released subscription tier. They're calling ChatGPT business. And this is designed for enterprises. The plan is going to follow OpenAI's API data usage policy. So what that means is if you're on this tier, the user data that you give ChatGPT to produce prompts will by default not be used to train ChatGPT. So for anyone who doesn't know today, unless you are specifically turning off certain settings through the API, anytime you share, content with ChatGPT or ask it to produce outputs for you, you are also helping train the model. The second is a feature that now allows you to start preventing this as an individual user as well. So we can now, we are now going to start seeing individual users at any tier have the ability to turn off their chat history. When you do that, anything that you uh, give ChatGPT in terms of data or conversation will not be explicitly used to train ChatGPT. So these kinds of 
uh, privacy and security features are definitely more appealing to some of the concerns out there about how OpenAI trains the model and as well as the concerns that enterprises have when trying to use these tools in a compliant way. So first up, Paul, I wanted to ask you, what do these changes mean for business leaders who are using ChatGPT or thinking about using it moving forward? I just think it's interesting that OpenAI, you know, is making the play. It seemed really obvious this was the direction they were going. They know that, that you know, enterprises are not going to want their data in future training sets for the next foundational models. So it, it was sort of inevitable that they were going to do this. The conversations we've been having lately with enterprises and it, it is this exact concern. Like everybody's trying to figure out the play with large language models. Should they be, you know, customizing and training their own? And if so, which language model company or which AI application company should they be working with? And how does that work? And this is sort of like, again, almost every conversation I'm having at the C-suite level it's coming back to this. What, how do we build a strategy around our use of large language models? And obviously inherent within that is we are not going to give our data to anybody. Um, there was a crazy example. I think you, you and I traded this back and forth maybe, but the guy on Twitter, we'll find the mm. link and put it in here, who like patched in GPT-4 to his bank accounts, credit card, like gave it all its personal information and testing detail so that it could help him find savings, like find anomalies and expenses in his credit cards and all these recurring costs, like super utility, like great function, but in the process, giving all of his personal financial data to open AI, which mm. is like crazy. And yet, you know, I know that a lot of people don't realize that's what's happening when they're putting their data into there. I was actually, um, I've had just in the last week, I had conversations with, um, some attorneys who weren't aware of that, um, mm. and, and some other industries where. They may have people who are using these tools unbeknownst to the corporation and could easily be putting in meeting notes for summarization or things like that, where there's confidential information contained within them, uh, asking it to summarize PDFs where you're cutting and pasting stuff into there. So there's all these uses. And I think the key takeaway for me is that, uh, again, if, if you're not aware, you have to be careful what information you put into these tools. You have to understand the usage of your data, um, how they're going to apply it and to make sure it remains your confidential proprietary data. And I just think this is going to be something, a continuous theme we'll talk about on this show, because almost every enterprise I'm aware of is starting to realize they have to solve for this and trying to figure out what do they do? Who do they talk to? How do they move forward? Um, so yeah, I don't, and as a, as someone who uses chat GPT, um, the one thing I thought of is like, why do I have to turn off my like chat history? Like that, that's a really useful function for me is to like, see the things I've asked. Like actually what I wanted the search function within my chat history. So I have like, you know, dozens of these things I've done use GPT for, um, to create and like to find them is kind of hard right now. So I'm all constantly scrolling, but I like having that history there. So I don't want to have to give that up just to like not have my data. But at the same time, that's probably the barrier they want. They, they want mm. your data, so they don't want you to easily turn it off. So yeah, it just seems like the direction it's all going to go um, and something for people to keep an eye on. So given that, do you see this as leading to more enterprise adoption or usage of ChatGPT? Is it too early to tell? I, w I would guess it at least puts them in the conversation. Again, if you're working in a an industry like insurance or financial services or healthcare, or, you know, I mean, honestly, really any enterprise that protects its data and has a CIO and has security protocols and governance. And you, you're going to ask these questions regardless. Previously, OpenAI just may not have been a, 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 a platform you would consider if they didn't have these protocols in place. So I think it's almost just like essential for them to be part of the conversation around corporate language AI strategies. Gotcha. And also, I think it's important to layer in some context here. These moves, their changes, these aren't happening in a vacuum. OpenAI has faced some pretty serious legal and regulatory challenges, notably with Italy trying to ban ChatGPT and the EU looking more closely at how OpenAI trains models. How does this move or these developments relate to what they're dealing with on a legal and regulatory front? I assume it's all connected. Just last week, didn't Italy uh, reinstate 
chat GPT. So I, I assume there was some sort of concessions made on OpenAI's part that would enable them to get back in and, and try and proactively prevent other countries uh, in the EU from, you know, shutting it off. So yeah, it all seems to be connected. We know OpenAI from past episodes we've talked about. We know OpenAI is in conversations with the U.S. government, you know, on you know, oversight and regulations and um, trying to be proactive there. And I'm sure doing some um, lobbying to just kind of protect the innovation side of this. So yeah, I think it's all connected, which is why it's probably going to be an ongoing story on this podcast, at least. It's just, it touches every aspect of society and business right now. Yeah, and speaking of how it is starting to affect society, um, don't uh, be upset with me if I am sighing during this next topic. <laughs> it's not because I'm not interested in our podcast. It's because what we have feared would would come to pass has started to because we just got a startling preview of how AI is going to reshape politics. So in the U.S. here, we're kicking off a 2024 presidential election season. Our election seasons are painfully long. And this one kicked off with an attack ad that was 100% generated by artificial intelligence. And basically, it's a video that imagines like a future dystopia where President Joe Biden has remained in office after next year's results and all this terrible stuff happens. So obviously, it's a uh, Republican focus. Uh, produced video and the images, the voices, the video clips, all AI generated are really, really convincing. And they were created with widely available AI technology. And they kind of foreshadow this election season where AI is going to be used by all parties and all actors on every part of the political spectrum to generate hyper-realistic synthetic content at scale. And we'll talk about that a little bit here because at the same time, I think because of threats like these and what else is going on, governments do seem like they are speeding up taking some type of action around AI. So lawmakers in the U.S. and Europe both signaled this week that they're taking more aggressive action to regulate AI. For instance, in the U.S., we saw four major federal agencies, including the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, release a joint statement on their stance towards AI companies. And they made it very clear they would not treat AI companies different from other firms when enforcing rules and regulations. So they've come out with quite a strong stance saying, look, if you break the rules, you will face consequences, regardless of what technology you're developing. Now, in Europe, the European Parliament reached a deal to move forward on the world's first, you know, kind of comprehensive AI rule book. It's called the Artificial Intelligence Act, and it's been uh, around for probably almost a year now or hypothesized and debated over in the European Parliament. And it's a broad suite of regulations that govern the use of AI within the European Union. So there's tons of safeguards in there that protect against things like misusing the systems and having rules that protect citizens from AI risks. So there's a lot going on when it comes to how AI is impacting governments and society and how those forces are reacting. So, Paul, I know you had a pretty strong reaction to the political ad that was released this week. Can you walk us through your thoughts? Um, specifically, you had warned that despite how much of a hot topic AI is, that the average citizen still really has no idea that AI can create realistic synthetic media at a level of accuracy or scale that we're seeing today. Yeah. The, the thing that I took away, the ad itself isn't anything crazy. Like if you've been following along in this space, it's not like there was some breakthrough in AI, you know, technology that generated some kind of creative output we've never seen before. It was basically a mashup of uh, AI generated images that strung together with some text and some audio. But it, the, the thing that um, really was a triggering point for me is it's just the prelude to what's about to happen. So, I mean, we're going to see AI creating content at a scale we've never seen before. Personalization of ads, personalization of messaging, text messaging, emails, uh, video content, like all of it, all the best of what's available, the most advanced technology is going to be used in these campaigns. Like there's, it's, it's not even a debate. And then the, the challenge, you know, somebody said on, on my LinkedIn post was about like, well, when lawmakers step in, it's like, 
they're the people that are using the technology. What are they going to do? Stop themselves from using it? So I feel like the significance is really the fact that it's just a sign of things to come. I, you know, one person was commenting, oh, it's just like, you know, who cares? It's like Photoshop. Like you could always do this with Photoshop. And it's like, I think that's just missing point. Look, like to do something like this with Photoshop would have required expertise in Photoshop. Do something like this in mid-journey doesn't require the depth of expertise. Sure, you need to know how to prompt it and stuff, but the average person can do this. And so the average uh, army of people that are working for these campaigns can create almost endless amounts of this content. And so that's the part that really worries me is the ability to create this stuff at scale, targeted at an individual level, basically. Um, these political campaigns are some of the most advanced campaigns we've ever seen. Uh, most marketers probably aren't even aware how advanced the stuff these political campaigns do. They have hundreds of millions of dollars, not billions of dollars to put into these campaigns. And so I just feel like we're about to see the best and worst of what AI can do all at once for the next, what do we got? 16 months, 17 months, whenever this election happens. Yeah. Uh, so we are about to get a firsthand look at what this AI is capable of. And as you highlighted, my biggest concern is that the average U.S. citizen has no idea AI can do this stuff. Like they're not, they're not going to know the difference. And that's, that's a problem. Like there, there's a need for, um, very rapid education because, um, I mean, political campaigns, historically, they do disinformation, misinformation, propaganda. It's by nature what politics is, mm. but never at a scale like this, never with the ability to manipulate people, their emotions and their behavior the way that they'll be able to now. And that's what worries me about it. So it doesn't really seem like we're in a time where brands and businesses can totally stay out of politics. So like what as a professional or a business leader, seeing where this is going and where AI generated content will soon be a norm in terms of what we are bombarded with and have to respond to as business people, like what what should business people be thinking about or doing to prepare for this? Honestly, at this point, I, I think it's doing their part to help educate society. Like I I, I don't know how else to say it. Like I mean, you'll get, you're going to start getting questions from family members and friends. It's going to be a topic of conversation. Like this is going to start surfacing. People that would never talk to you about AI are going to start asking you like, you know how they did that deep fake thing? Or you know what they're talking about with all this misinformation? Like, and you're going to be the one that needs to bring reason and understanding to the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think that if nothing else, it's just preparing yourself to help educate within your own company, but, you know, larger point within society, within your family, within your friends, just about what's happening, because it's going to be really hard to know what to believe. Um, and I, I do think that in some ways, like sources of truth are going to be really, really important. Mm -hmm. Like if your, your family or coworkers are the kind of people who tend to believe what they see online, on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever they're getting their information, TikTok. There has to just be an increased awareness that what they're seeing may not be real and true. Now, again, this isn't new to society. We've been dealing with this for a long time. But again, it's just going to be the scale. And I, I really think we're going to need to just find the, the, the sources of information that we know we can trust. And if we see something verify, like, it, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know that we can rewire society in the next 18 months of how to process this kind of information. But I really just think it's doing your part to help educate as best as possible, um, without alienating. Like, it, again, it's politics. Like it's really hard to have these conversations without mm -hmm. someone getting mad or someone, you know, throwing dirt at one side or the other. And we're just trying to kind of raise awareness of it as a, as a content and an inter information vehicle and the need for people to understand how this stuff works and what it's able to create. I just, I don't know what else to do at this point, honestly. That's why we put it up on LinkedIn and why we wanted to throw it into the podcast is just make sure that the conversation's happening in some small way. Yeah. So let's talk for a second about these varying government responses to AI technology out there. In the U.S., it seems like 
from what we've heard from the federal agencies that I just talked about, that we're moving towards essentially regulating AI by applying existing laws to AI companies, whether they're, you know, that apply to non-AI companies as well. Whereas it seems like the EU is attempting to craft AI-specific legislation. How do you view kind of the differing approaches here? Is there one that's better than the other or? I don't know. Like, you know, again, I think this is an important topic to surface. We've talked previously about the challenges of the AI Act within the EU and, you know, the technical challenges of overseeing that uh, kind of governing once they have it in place. And we talked about kind of the, what appears to be lack of action from the U.S. government. Mm. So I think it's, it's an important topic. There was a Fast Company article that we'll drop in the show notes. Um, that, you know, they kind of brought up the point of that this, what you were saying, the U.S. is going to try and kind of apply these existing laws where the EU is trying to get specific. And the challenge they said is like, it's going to get really hard to, to apply it to specific technologies, especially as this stuff scales and all these new technologies popping up and they have applying new laws. So it seems like kind of more general guidance might be the better path here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I read the joint statement, so the joint statement was from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and the Federal Trade. Um, when I read it, I just felt like it was a lot of, okay, like, how are you actually going to govern this, though? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, it just seems like a blanket statement to just say we're looking at this and we're aware we're not going to let people get away with stuff with no real clear guidance of what that actually means or what actions they would take. So I'll give you an example. So in the joint statement, they say that these federal agencies are responsible for enforcing civil rights, non-discrimination, fair competition, consumer protection. So totally get this. Like they don't want AI used in determining um, your your ability to get home loans or jobs or like these things that are obvious. It's like, okay, that makes sense. And the FTC doesn't want you to do false advertising. Sure. Okay. Like, I can see how these existing laws can govern that, mm-hmm. but it really starts to get kind of messy when you start looking at some of the specific areas. So like they say the FTC Act um, doesn't want to be able to use uh, discriminatory impacts or to make claims about AI that are not substantiated or to deploy AI before taking steps to assess and mitigate risks. Finally, the FTC has required firms to destroy algorithms or other work product that were trained on data that should not have been collected. Okay, so if we just take that paragraph, <laughs> um, do not deploy before taking steps to assess and mitigate risks. So does this mean that the FTC Act is cool with how GPT-4 came to market? Like, do they, or mid-journey or stable diffusion? Like, they're, they're, are they looking at those things? Because that, those would all seem to fit under this umbrella, in which case then they should give more guidance that says, Specifically, here are some examples of how this has been applied. Mm-hmm. So I look at this and say, you're basically saying we're going to do this because you haven't apparently done it, or at least you haven't shared with like the general public how you applied those. And then has required firms to destroy algorithms or other work product that were trained on data that should not have been collected. Like what? Like copyrighted materials that mm-hmm. train image generation technology? So they have to destroy stable diffusion like but so that's what i'm saying like it's this sort of, like sort of broad general statement that doesn't actually appear to have anything tactical behind it mm. and yeah you know, and the, you can again go read the joint statement yourself it's only three pages but they get into three specific areas that again just sort of called to me like this is just this general guidance so they have data data sets um so automated systems that can be skewed by unrepresentative or imbalanced data sets they have model opacity and access, um, talking about these, these things being black boxes. That's what generative AI is. Like they, they don't know why it's generating the words it's generating. Like, so all of this applies to this, hmm. um, this lack of transparency often makes it all the more difficult for developers, businesses, and individuals to know whether an automated system is fair and then design and use, which is developers do not always understand or account for the context in which private and public entities will use their automated systems. Um, so I, I, I get it. My overall take here is I think it's good that the federal government is saying something. I, I don't feel like this is anywhere near as specific as the Copyright Office guidance from March 16th. I think the, the U.S. Copyright Office's credit, they were very specific 
and their guidance, whether it's right or wrong, or whether it's going to have to evolve to allow some form of AI authorship, that's to be debated, but they put out very specific guidance and then they, they announced listening sessions to hear feedback. This to me is like someone told these agencies, they better be doing something mm. and they teamed up and put out a statement through the PR team. And if you press them on, what does this actually mean? They probably have no idea. I hope I'm wrong, but that's sure what this seems like as a former PR person. <laughs> this is a lot of like, Hey, we're, we're working on this and thinking about it. Gotcha. So our third kind of big topic pulls together a few threads that we're seeing and where we're getting to is that we're seeing that AI is having a really major impact on the profits, earnings, and business health of big tech companies, but it's not always the impact that maybe employees would like. And so here's a couple of data points to justify why I say that. Um, we had a recent round of tech earnings calls and we saw some major companies like Microsoft, Google, and Meta displaying pretty strong or better than expected results given the economic environment. And some of this growth was explicitly driven by AI. I mean, the companies are talking about AI far, far more on earnings calls than they were a year ago. In Microsoft's case, Azure revenue was up 27% year on year. And they actually said they're already generating new sales from the AI products they've released. Google was a little less specific about its AI plans, but it committed to incorporating generative AI into its products moving forward. And we have seen some reports that Meta is playing a lot of catch up to retool its infrastructure for AI, kind of getting caught flat footed maybe with their emphasis previously on the metaverse, but they still saw an unexpected increase in sales in the past quarter. And then amidst this, there's another side to this coin. All of these companies face enormous pressure from shareholders to get leaner. Um, some have conducted layoffs already, and there are some more that are expected to come. And they're pretty clear on all of them saying they're relying on AI to evolve their businesses and or capture efficiencies. And so this really, like, I think we've danced around the topic for a while, but it really kind of came home to roost in a very stark example with a recent announcement from Dropbox that they're cutting staff by 16%. That's about 500 people. And they explicitly said one of the major reasons for the cuts is artificial intelligence. So co-founder and CEO Drew Houston wrote in a letter to staff that Dropbox needed to act with urgency to seize the opportunity presented by artificial intelligence. But to do that, the company needed a different mix of skills than it has today. He said, quote, in an ideal world, we'd simply shift people from one team to another. And we've done that wherever possible. However, our next stage of growth requires a different mix of skill sets, particularly in AI, and early stage product development. So I wanted to kick things off here amidst, you know, better than expected earnings, companies getting leaner, but we're still seeing layoffs and AI powered business evolution. Can you talk to us a bit about the pressure that major companies are facing in boardrooms, executive meetings to adopt AI, to get leaner, to use it, to get more efficient? What have you seen and heard so far in that conversation? There seems to be a a growing awareness of AI's potential to drive much larger efficiencies in organizations. And as we talked about in the knowledge work episode, efficiency can sometimes be code word for reduction of workforce. So I, I do feel that given conversations I've been having with some bigger companies that there is going to be uh, increasing pressure to find ways to be as efficient as possible for a lot of different reasons, as we previously covered at length in the knowledge work um, episode. But um, I'm optim. I want to say I, I understand there's a lot of like big challenges right now in AI. There's topics we talk about that aren't always optimistic and hopeful. Um, and I'm continuing to like think about what are, what are the opportunities here and, and 
the Dropbox example doesn't help because they're just like, we're just going to get rid of these 500 people and yeah. um, find people who can work on AI, basically. I don't think theirs is specifically saying we're going to replace these people with AI. Theirs is saying we got a lot of people who aren't contributing toward our advancement in AI and we, mm. we fell behind. So Dropbox, he said, like, we've been working on AI for years, but like we, we weren't where we needed to be and we need people on board who can get us where we need to be. So I would say I'm optimistic that in a lot of industries, there's going to be time to figure out how to redistribute these workforces. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be um, an effort to find roles and opportunities to increase output, to, um, to, to really do more with the, the, the time save. I don't think SaaS is one. Like this is the, the tech industry is going to be brutal. Like that, there's just no way around this. Um, I, I think there's going to be lots of middle management that are deemed unnecessary. I think there's going to be lots of developers who don't know how to build AI tools that are going to be expendable. And I just think it's going to happen so fast because the pressure on the SaaS companies in particular is so, is so great. And I have talked with quite a number of SaaS companies in this space. Um, so I, I do think that the Dropbox example could, could happen. I think there's a lot of product teams at these SaaS companies who have no idea what they're doing with AI. Um, couldn't build a product roadmap for AI because they, they have no background in it and they're scrambling to try and figure it out on the fly. And they don't think they don't go deep enough to actually realize the disruptive force it's going to have on their, their product roadmap. So I think SaaS, we're going to keep seeing these stories just one after another. You know, we had Meadow as the big example of 10,000, you know, being laid off, but I think this is going to keep happening. And the other thing I think that's happening is these these big companies like Google and AWS or Amazon AWS and Microsoft Azure, like they're trying to find markets for their technology. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, you know, like a Google or a Microsoft or again, Amazon for 20 years, they've been working on AI, but they just didn't productize it. Like the, it was, it was mostly internal technology largely. And so now you're faced with this, you know, reality of, wow, we got to turn this into products. Like, um, AWS is an example. They have, you know, in our book, we highlighted in chapter one, they had like, what, like 30 or more pre-trained AI models. Like, so this was, we wrote our book in early, late 2021, early 2022. And so we highlighted all these pre-trained models that live in these clouds, but none of them were things you or I could go use. Yeah. So like, if we wanted to actually take AWS's personalization or content extraction or image recognition, you needed developers to help you build these things. And all of a sudden, fall of 2022 hit and Chad GPT emerged. And all of a sudden, like, we can just use these. Things. Like, we don't need developer friends. And so I think that's what's, there's just so many variables happening. But those are a couple of the bigger trends that are going to impact this. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of pressure, though. I Again, I'm, I want to make sure we interweave senses of hope and optimism into these conversations. Yeah. And I do really think that there are going to be a lot of industries, maybe ones that are dealing with shortages of workers. So I'm thinking of even the senior living industry as I'm sitting here in Austin, Texas. They have a massive shortage of workers. Um, you know, maybe, maybe AI is a help to that. And, and so I, I want to find the silver lining wherever we can. And I, I think there's going to be a lot of it. It's just right now that these negative things are sort of dominating the headlines. Well, in terms of that silver lining, it might be worth spending a moment on, if you're kind of new to this topic, you might be sitting here thinking like, well, I don't really know anything about artificial intelligence. I only know about my area of expertise. And it's like, to your point, that's a big opportunity because you don't need a PhD in AI to take what you're very good at and start applying AI to it and also understanding how AI is going to affect it. You have an opportunity potentially to be that person in your organization that sees where your domain of expertise is going in a world that's AI first. 100%. And actually, that's, that's like a universal theme that I'll say when I'm giving my talks is everyone is um, sort of overwhelmed by this topic. It's, everyone's uncertain. Some people are very afraid of it and just want to ignore it. And you do have the chance to be someone in your organization raises their hand and say, I want to, I want to figure this out. Um, mm -hmm. so we, you know, in the, 
the knowledge work episode, we talked about this idea of forming an internal AI council, using that council to build responsible AI principles, generative AI policies, figure out the impact on the organization. Be the person that starts that. I don't care if you're 22 or, or 72, like raise your hand and say, I, I think we need to be proactive here. Let's figure out what it means to our company, our workforce, and let's start planning now. Let's not wait till it hits our industry. And so I think that's the opportunity. Again, if you're listening to this podcast, I get that there's a lot of topics and it's kind of heavy and it's not always super optimistic, but you can turn it into something optimistic if you take all this information and just move forward in your career and say, no, no, no I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out. I'm going to help my team figure this out. Um, so yeah, I think the best way to solve for this is to just be proactive with the knowledge you're gaining and do everything you can to, to achieve a positive outcome. I and mean, that's what we're doing every day. It's like, damn, we could easily get discouraged by all of this news. But for me and Mike, it's just like, no, like let's get this information to as many people as we can and let's do everything we can to make sure it's done responsibly. And in the end, like we can go to bed at night thinking we tried to make an effort to have a positive impact today on the industry, on society, whatever. And so I think if you do the same, you'll find hope and in information. I think that's really good guidance. If I'm starting to think as a knowledge worker of how to start evolving in terms of like a couple, just really simple, practical steps. Do you have any recommendations? Uh, if I have little or no AI experience, like what should I be doing right that, you know, this week? Yeah. The thing you and I talk about all the time is understanding is the first step always like you, you just have to develop a confidence in the topic to be able to take those proactive actions. So if that means taking an online course or reading a book or going to a conference, like whatever it is, however you best learn consuming a podcast, like however you like to learn, do that, go deep on it. And you mm -hmm. can do it in a week or two. Like, you know, I'm not saying like spend the next two years on this. Just get to a point where you're confident enough. And I've seen it. Like I've done talks for corporations and then had young professionals from those corporations reach out to me and say, hey, I'm in an organization with a thousand marketers. Like who am I at 25 to be the one to do this, but no one else is doing it. And I'll give them guidance. Like, okay, here's what I would do. And you, so you can see the people starting to take the initiative to learn the stuff and get confident enough in it that they can then go and take action. And sometimes they'll reach out to me like a quick LinkedIn message because I feel like they're looking for validation that's like, no, you can do this. Like no yeah. one else is gonna be the one. And I just like maybe take if you're if you're fit into that where you're sitting in these bigger companies and you're wondering like, could I really be the person? Yes, <laughs> you can and take mm -hmm. this as like my one to many um pep talk. You absolutely can be the person to do it. Um I had one of our listeners recently took an episode, one of our episodes, and then one source from the Washington Post and took it to actually activate change within an education system. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that was enough. Like she just, she needed something to go do. Uh, and I just, I love hearing stories like that. Cause it gives me hope that people are just going to be proactive and find ways to positively affect this. That's awesome. So let's dive into a few rapid fire topics before we wrap this up here. And the first one is we just saw runway ML, which we've talked about many times on the podcast, a major leader in AI, they create a popular AI creative suite where you can do everything from edit and create video, images, et cetera. They actually just released their Gen 1 video-to-video -video generative AI model for mobile through the Runway iOS app. So you can literally now in your pocket have these stunning AI-powered capabilities when it comes to creative. What did you think of this announcement? It's pretty cool. I downloaded it. You can create up to five second videos. They've got some template themes that you can apply to any like images or videos in your library. So you give it access to your, your photos and videos. Um, and then you can just prompt it to create something. So, or that'll be in the gen two right now. It's the video to video transfer. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, there are, so one of my issues with adoption of generative AI is having to be in discord to do this. Like right. I am not a discord user, so I don't use mid journey and I don't, I just don't want to have to go there. I get that that's where people are doing it. So I think what runway is doing is brilliant because it, it's getting rid of that barrier. Like, why do I have to go to discord to use something? I just, just download an app or go to the site. And so I think their adoption of runway will, will probably skyrocket, but yeah, it's really cool. Again, it's just experimental. Like creating a five second video isn't life changing. You're not going to 
you know, create your next trailer for your, your demo for your company with this stuff, but you get a sense of where it's going and what's going to be possible. So definitely download it, check it out. And again, they're not a sponsor. Like it's just awesome tech that we use all the time. So next up, we saw that a major accounting firm, PricewaterhouseCoopers, has said it plans to invest $1 billion over the next three years, specifically to transform its operations with generative AI technology. And what's really interesting about the announcement is they say they plan to use AI to, quote, automate aspects of tax, audit, and consulting services. And they're also going to be using this funding to recruit more AI workers, train existing staff in AI, and potentially acquire some AI companies. And they're doing this all in partnership with Microsoft and OpenAI. This seems like a pretty big swing in that industry. What did you think? Yeah, they're not alone. I mean, the article says other accounting firms, including KPMG, Ernst Young, are also investing in generative AI, TurboTax owner into it building its own generative AI language model for financial management, trained on years of interacting with business customers, like just the continuing investment here. And I, I just, I don't see any end of this. I feel like we're really just at the beginning stages of this evolution. You're going to see it in major consulting firms. We're already seeing it in major consulting firms. Um, the part about the talent's interesting, like where are you going to find this talent yeah. is my big question. So I do think that, and again, find, finding hope in all of this. Every company is going to need workers who understand AI and can guide it. You know, human and machine, the, the human prompts, the machine knows what to do with the output. It can evaluate the output. Um, those people don't exist. Like they're nowhere. So, I mean, we've thought about how do you scale up? Like if you wanted to start a company and hire a hundred people who knew this stuff, where yes. are you going to find them? So I think that every organization is going to, you know, that's serious about really becoming AI emergent is going to be very aggressive in building internal education programs to evolve their teams to be um, high comprehension levels with AI so they can work with tools. Excellent. This, other, this next one was pretty fascinating to me. I know it caught your eye as well. A new study just came out that looked at whether or not an AI chatbot could provide healthcare answers to patients in a way that was as accurate and empathetic as a human physician. So to test this, basically the researchers tested both AI and physician-written answers on a social media health forum. And they actually found out, at least in their study, that the answer was yes. The AI responses were actually preferred over the human physician ones, and they were rated significantly higher for both quality and empathy. What, did, what was your take on this study when you started reading about it? Two thoughts here. One, we are not by any means saying that AI is going to replace physicians because as we have said many, many times, large language models make stuff up all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we were at a point where we're just going to switch and AI chatbots are going to replace the need to interact with physicians. Physicians likely still need to be in the loop at all times when it comes to this stuff. So kind of a uh, disclaimer here. The second is, it's one of the moments where I step back and realize that we talk about empathy being one of those uniquely human things. And then I started thinking about my life and realizing how horrible many humans are at being empathetic. Like there's a lot of I don't know if unempathetic is the, the right word here, but there's a lot of people who don't have a lot of empathy and yeah. can't even pretend to do it. They just don't. And the AI can do it every time. It can synthesize or simulate empathy. So what I could see is, again, this human plus machine scenario. There's lots of doctors I've who just have no bedside manner. Like, mm -hmm. they're just terrible at it. And I could see... An AI agent that's like, make this more empathetic is like a, a feature in the language model. So it's like, okay, I'm, I'm responding to this patient via email, um, or private message, whatever. And then there would be a add empathy button and it would almost simulate what an empathetic human would say. So when you, when you think about just overall across society, how many people you interact with each day that you feel have high degrees of empathy. And there's gonna be a lot of people where you're like, no, that they don't fit that category. 
AI could help add empathy. And I don't know that that would be a bad thing. Like, right. Maybe people who aren't empathetic could learn empathy by being coached by the AI to be more empathetic. Like, um, man, I could see that as a big thing in management, like within mm-hmm. companies, if you have managers who just struggle to connect with people, I just, I did a talk or listened to a talk this morning from a keynote at this conference that was talking about the different generations and you know, how millennials may need more empathy from their managers than baby boomers did, mm-hmm. um, or gen X. And so that kind of thing was where you start again, where you think about the innovation that could occur and the positive impact AI could have, you start to think about. I mean, maybe there is a AI for empathy tool to be built that lays over all this other stuff and just teaches humans how to be better humans. I am. It's, it's doable. I think somebody should build that. Actually, if you do, let me know. <laughs> I would, we will happily support that idea. That's awesome. So we also got another major fundraising announcement in AI this week. So Replit, which we've talked about before, is an AI-powered software development platform. And they just announced an extension to their previous Series B fundraising. And so they are now valued at $1.16 billion. And in this latest extension, they raised a little over $97 million. And they've specifically stated the funds are to do two big things, expand their cloud services and build their lead in AI for software creation. As part of their platform, they have Ghostwriter, which is an AI-powered coding co-pilot, essentially. So I know you followed Replit for a while, Paul. What was your take on seeing this amount of money being raised? We've talked about them a couple of times before. This company is no joke. I mean, there's there's just some AI companies that I just feel like they're they're gonna be major players in the future and replit is one of them i mean i met their co-founder and ceo amjad he's brilliant you know he grinded for 10 years building this company before anybody cared moved from jordan to build it in the u.s like this awesome story of entrepreneurship and perseverance and their mission is like to create like a billion developers like they're yeah. i was just scanning if i could find um what he tweeted about it but they're trying to democratize coding, basically the ability to build apps and companies. And so I just feel like they're going to play a major role in the explosion of innovation and entrepreneurship. And I don't think anybody's aware of that yet, like in the business world or in the tech world, like they're sort of just coming on the scene and this will be a bit of a coming out party from, you know, achieving that unicorn status, the billion dollar plus valuation. A lot more people are going to pay attention to what they're doing, but them and like runway we talk a lot about we talked about them earlier Descript. like there's just some of these companies that probably fly under the radar for most business leaders yeah that i just feel like you're going to hear a lot more about in the future and yeah just pay attention to replets really cool stuff all right we saved a big topic for last yeah. year and a very recent development as of the time of recording this podcast um Jeff Hinton is one of the godfathers of modern artificial intelligence. And for the last decade, he has worked at Google to help them lead in AI. Well, that ended this week with a bit of a bombshell because Hinton just quit Google. And he says he specifically quit because he wants to speak up about AI risks. And he told our friend Cade Metz at the New York Times that he fears major companies are no longer developing AI responsibly. And he also thinks AI is going to cause some very major issues by things like we just talked about, the generation of fake media and job loss. So, Paul, am I right in saying this is a pretty big deal? Yeah. If it, <laughs> if you did, so if you haven't read Genius Makers by Cade Metz, just go read. Like, you will understand the significance of Jeff Hinton to modern AI, deep learning, everything we're seeing with image and, and language generation. A lot of that can be attributed to the work of Jeff Hinton over the last 40 plus years. So read Genius Makers by Cade Metz, follow this story, uh, follow Jeff Hinton. He tweets very rarely, um, maybe a couple times a month. I have alerts set up for any time Jeff Hinton tweets, so I'm, I know what he tweets. Uh, and that's how I actually saw this and this morning. So just, yeah, I would follow this story and I would listen to what he has to say. Um, there's very few people alive who know 
more about AI than Jeff Hinton does and what's possible and the near and long-term implications of it. So I would pay attention and I would read Genius Makers by Cade Metz. And we'll put in a bonus show notes. Uh, I interviewed Cade Metz for our 2021 Marketing AI Conference. We did a fireside chat about Genius Makers and that video is available on YouTube. So we'll post that interview in the show notes where we actually get into the story of Jeff Hinton. It's awesome. And the interview with Cade was on the highlights of running a conference for me for the last four years. Fantastic. Well, you know, I think we've covered just a few major topics today. Paul, <laughs> as always, thank you for your time and insight. It's incredibly helpful to unpack what's going on in the world of AI. Yeah, and uh, safe travels on the speaking circuit. Maybe we'll see each other sometime in May. Yeah. <laughs> like we're just, like, just going different parts of the world at all times. So I'll actually, I'll probably run into you in, back in Cleveland. I'll be back for a, a day or two before I head to the next talk. So I think I might be at your talk on Wednesday. So yeah, I'll, I'll see you soon. And okay. um, to our listeners or, you know, viewers on YouTube, again, all, all these podcasts are published on YouTube as full videos as well. So if you'd rather see our faces and my dimly lit hotel background today, um, you're welcome to check us out on YouTube. Um, but yeah, we hope to, you know, meet more of you at Macon in July. Like we'd love to see you at the conference and, um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of chance in recent months to interact with podcast listeners at the events I've been speaking at. We'll come up and say to listen all the time and it's awesome. So definitely, you know, look forward to hopefully meeting more of you in person. Don't hesitate to reach out to Mike and I on LinkedIn. We're both pretty active there. And uh, yeah, until next week, we'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to The Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.